You're listening to podcast audio from Radiant Church, located in Bay City, Michigan. For more information on Radiant Church, you can check us out on www.radiantbc.com or follow us on social media at Radiant Bay City. Hey, good morning, Radiant Church. Hope you guys are well. Thank you for being here. If you're new with us, welcome. Thanks for worshiping with us. My name is Marco. I am the lead pastor here. Hey, guys, Easter is quickly approaching. And listen, we're going to have three different services right here at Radiant Church. We're going to have a full weekend, actually. But our Easter services will be taking place at 8 a.m., 9.30, and 11.15. These are generally about an hour long. Our kids' classes will be open during the 9.30 and the 11.15. 15 services. Make sure you get here a few minutes late because it's probably going to be packed. Get a good seat. It's going to be an incredible weekend. And uh, listen, we're going to have some invite cards for you coming out in the next couple of weeks. So make sure you invite friends, family, co-workers, enemies, everyone who you can think of. Bring them here to hear the gospel, the good news of Jesus. It's going to be an awesome weekend. Well, listen, today we are in part number five. We're in this teaching series that we started a few weeks ago known as Christ Culture Church. We're walking through the letter of 1 Corinthians, and this is found in the New Testament. And today we're going to be in chapter 8, actually. But if you don't know this letter, it was written by a guy named, a man named Paul. And Paul was, um, was not a Jesus follower, but he had a radical conversion. I mean, Jesus himself saved Paul, radically changed him, transformed him, and then Paul became this missionary and evangelist. And he would start these churches in the Asia Minor area that was Greece and, and Turkey. And then Paul, he would write letters back to the churches to make sure they were doing well and to bring correction. So when we read 1 Corinthians, what we find out is that uh, Paul is both bringing clarification on what the gospel is, but he's also bringing correction because there's a lot of dysfunction in the church. I mean, it's kind of like a church gone wild, if you know what I mean. And he's bringing correction and truth because things have gotten a bit out of hand there. Now, one of the things that we also notice about the letter in 1 Corinthians is Uh, There are several places in the letter where Paul uses this little phrase. And the phrase is this, now concerning, or now about. So if you look at chapter 7, chapter 7 begins this way. Chapter 8 actually begins in the same way. The NIV renders it as now about. Chapter 12 begins in the same way. And chapter 16 also begins exactly the same way, now concerning or now about. And and this little phrase, when it's used, it shows us, it's an indication that Paul is actually responding or addressing different questions that the Corinthians had, like issues that were coming up. Now, it just so happens to be that these questions and these these issues are, are just as relevant today as they were back in the first century. Today's message Paul is going to address what some might call the gray areas of our faith. In fact, the title of my message is entitled that, The Gray Areas of Our Faith. If you're wondering what that is, we'll we'll answer that just a bit later. The Gray Areas of Our Faith. If you have a Bible, would you go ahead and open it up or your smartphone to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. I want to read the first three verses. 
Now, we'll cover the whole chapter because it's actually a, a shorter chapter, thank God, right? And we'll read the first three verses, we'll pray, and then we'll dive into the rest of our message this morning. So let's go ahead and begin. The verses will be behind me as well. Here's what it says in verse number one. It says this, now about, there's that little phrase there, right? Now about food sacrificed to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. So we're going to unpack these verses in just a few moments. Would you just take a, a, a few moments with me? We're going to pray together, church, and then we'll get into the rest of our message. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you for your presence here. And God, we just ask that you would open blind eyes, that you would unlock um, deaf ears, that you would soften uh, the hardest of hearts. Lord, I'm just reminded of what your word says, that when Jesus is lifted high, he will, he will draw all men to him. Father, would you, would you do that? As we lift up the name of Jesus in his word, would you just draw men and women and children to you? Father, I pray that they would see Jesus as beautiful and lovely as the Savior, God of the world. Come to know him in that way today, God. So would you just awaken faith in this place, Lord, as we prayed earlier. Do a miracle in marriages, God. Let there be communication where it was all dried up at one point or another, God. Let there be love once again. Father, again, as Kinsey prayed, would you call prodigal sons and daughters home, Lord. Home. In your presence, God, is where they belong. So, God, we're expecting of the work that you will do this morning. We look forward to it. We pray this in Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen, amen. Let me ask you a question as we begin this morning. What do you think of when I say the word immature? Immature. Now, in the first service, one person yelled out, you know, a child, and I thought that was a great answer. I'm like, that's a perfect answer for my illustration this morning, I love my children. I want to be really clear on that. I love my children, but by default, because they're little, they're immature, right? They're just immature. Now, there are, are ways that my children will give evidence of their immaturity. <laughs> there are many ways, actually, but I'll highlight a couple. The first way that I think of is my kids, when I mention the word pee or poop, they cannot stop laughing, Okay. It's like nonstop laughter. It's like, Daddy said, be ha ha. It's like they go crazy, right? Another way that they give evidence of their immaturity is um, when they don't get their way, which, I mean, it can be kind of often. There's a tendency for a bit of a nuclear meltdown, if you know what I mean, right, parents? Right? Just like, just a mushroom cloud explosion. Like, whoa, the bomb was dropped, right? And a little bit of chaos, okay? Those are a few ways that my children will... Let me know. We're still immature. When we think of maturity, though, I think of this. Maturity often means um, the ability to accept responsibility for one's own actions. Like, you know, instead of like passing the buck or like, well, he did it. He made me do it. Or, you know, she said that. Or, oh, well, I thought this. You know, a mature person, you know, is able to say, well, yeah, I haven't been doing what I should be doing. And I did that. And that wasn't so smart. Yeah, I got to make some changes, right? That's a mature person. A mature person also, when they don't get their way, they don't necessarily throw a temper tantrum, okay? 
what do they do? Well, they, they try to see the good in all things, and then they, right, they just choose a different route. I guess we got to do things differently. I mean, they don't just kind of, you know, yell at people and throw things across the room like a child might do so. That's what a mature person would do anyways. Now, what about this? What are some signs of a spiritually mature person, church? A spiritually mature person, what, what, what do we look for when, we, when we're talking about spiritually mature people? Now, some of you in the room watching online, you, you might say this, well, okay, a spiritually mature people is, you know, someone who, like, knows a lot of theology, right? Like, head knowledge and, like, nerds out, you know, reads John Calvin and, you know, Wayne Grudem and R.C. Sproul and, you know, all the great theologians and of our day and our age and, and of course, in the past as well. It's surely, like, they have a, a lot of head nods. They must be mature. Some of us might think that, well, I think a spiritually mature person, Marco, is someone who, you know, attends church often. Like, they show up, they're there, you know, 90% of the time at least. They're probably more mature than those who only show up once a month. Okay, you might think that. All right, maybe, perhaps. What about this one? Certainly maturity, spiritual maturity has to be or has to do with how long a person has served the Lord, right? So it's like, okay, hey, if you've been serving the Lord for this many years, you've got to be mature, 20 years, you know, 30 years, 40 years. The more, the longer the person has served the Lord makes them spiritually mature. Maybe, <laughs> maybe not though. What if I told you all of these things that I just mentioned to you when it comes to spiritual maturity? Now, while all those things are good, you know, head knowledge, how often you attend, and how long you've been serving the Lord, those are awesome and those are celebrated. Those don't necessarily indicate or give evidence that you're spiritually mature. The Bible talks about a few things. I'll talk about one today because Paul's going to talk about it. He has talked about it. And that is love. Love. In fact, it goes a little bit something like this. The extent to which we love others reveals our maturity in Christ. The extent to which we love others reveals our maturity in Christ, especially the people that are like different from us, right? The don't believe like we do and don't talk like we do. All of those things. The extent in which we love others or can love others shows how, how mature we are in Christ. This is what Paul talks about. I'm going to tell you a quick story. In the 1960s, late 60s and 70s, there was a pastor. His name was Chuck Smith. Pastor Chuck Smith, he pastored a, a small and declining church. There's mostly older people were attending this church. Now, in history, what was going on in the world were there were many young people taking this adventure, this, this journey through sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and Eastern religions. Now, the church didn't know what to do with these hippies that were beginning to come to Christ. In fact, some churches just excluded them and, and shut the doors on them, didn't let them come in, come be a part of the church. But when these hippies begin to show up at a little church called Calvary Chapel, this was where Pastor Chuck Smith pastored, he let them in. He embraced them with open arms. He let them bring in their, their contemporary worship music and style. He let them bring that into the church. Now, this is what would set the stage for the Jesus movement, which was 
a revival that would sweep throughout the entire nation. And this is the backdrop for the movie Jesus Revolution. If you haven't seen it, you should see it. I think it's an awesome movie. We took our staff to see it a few weeks ago. We were crying. We were laughing. I mean, it was really touched and pulled on, you know, the heartstrings. We thought it was done with excellence, by the way, as well. Now, here's what the movie shows us without giving too much away if you haven't seen it yet. Now, while Pastor Chuck Smith embraced these young people, not everybody in the church did. In fact, a lot of people didn't. The other people in the church were, were afraid and they were concerned. What, what's going to happen to our church? And what, what are things going to look like if we have all these young hippies in our church and the style of music is different than what we know? And, and the idea is this, is that while those people in the church, listen, um, they probably had a lot of head knowledge, okay? They probably knew the Bible. They knew a lot of theology, and that's awesome. They probably attended church far more than these hippies did. Certainly they had been following the Lord for many more years, okay, than these young hippies that were just coming in. The one thing they lacked was a love of Christ for other people. So they had all the other things, but they lacked the love of Jesus in their hearts for others. So here's the thing. The Corinthians assumed, they assumed that knowledge was sort of the pinnacles of spirituality. And Paul's like, that's wrong. Actually, if you have knowledge without love, it just shows that you have no knowledge at all. In fact, in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you can read it at a different time. Paul says that if you have all these things and you, had, you do not have love, you're like a clashing cymbal. You, right? you make a lot of noise and you're just a bit annoying to everyone around you because you have no love. You can have tongues, you can have prophecy, and I'm, I'm for all those things, man. I'm for all those things. I believe them. I practice some of those gifts in my own life. But if you have not love, Paul says you're just like a resounding claim. Why is this all important? Why do I make such a big deal of that this morning? Well, this is, this is the theme that Paul is going to talk about. Paul says, listen, that knowledge puffs up. It makes you look big-headed, right? It's good to have knowledge. We should be growing in our knowledge. But love, but love is what builds up, builds other people up, builds believers up. We need, we need to practice and exercise all of our spirituality, all of our faith through what? Through the filter of love. Through the filter of love. And that's what Paul says in those first three verses. That's what he's talking about. You think you have all the knowledge? You have really no knowledge at all. You think you know something? You don't know anything at all. These people don't know anything at all. Paul is calling them out on their knowledge because they lack love. Now, that's the setting for this morning. So here's what we're going to do. Let's go through the rest of these verses, okay? And let's see what Paul says. Verse number four. So then, okay, or concerning, or now about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that, and it's in quotes because this is something that they would say or they have said, an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one, which is a common theme in the Old Testament, just so you know. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there's, there's but one God, the Father from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we 
live. If you're new to Corinthians, you're like, whoa, what, what, what did he say? I don't understand any of this. Well, let's unpack it for a few moments here. Paul's addressing eating food that's been sacrificed to idols. So let me set the stage here. Let me give you some context. Remember Corinth? Corinth is like Vegas on steroids, okay? So in Corinth, listen, there was all types of idolatry in that city within Greece, okay? There were all types of temples built to different gods, like uh, Aphrodite and uh, Poseidon and um, who else? Apollo. We know this, that the goddess Aphrodite was the protector deity of the city. And scholars say that she had at least three different sanctuaries within that city. So here's what would happen. Corinthians, the people living in that city, would approach, would visit these temples, and they would worship a fa- an idol, a false idol, a false god. How would they do that? Well, they would have this meat, and they would sacrifice it to the idols. In other words, they would burn the meat, a portion of the meat, and then they would eat some of the leftover, and then whatever was left over of that meat, they would give to, to merchants, and the merchants, guess what, would sell the remainder of that meat or that food to who? To people like you and me. So the Corinthians are like, okay, Paul, so here's the thing. You, you know what takes place in those temples, and you know about that meat that gets offered up to those gods. Can we eat that meat? Because it's on sale at Jack's, and, you know... <laughs> Kind of want to get some of that meat this week, and it's a great deal because I can get two pounds for $1.99. You get the picture, right? But like, if we get the meat, does that mean we're worshiping pagans? We're worshiping idols because we don't want to do that because we know that would be wrong. So, Paul, can you bring a little bit of clarification to what we're going through? I love this because Paul's quoting him, and he says, okay, it's great because you all, you all understand that there's no God but one. That's correct, right? That there's other so-called gods, but there's really only one true God. That's what Paul's saying here. He said, you guys recognize that, and that's awesome. Let me just say another aspect of context for all of you this morning. Now, the true definition of ancient monotheism, this, this idea that the Jews would worship one God, the true definition of ancient monotheism doesn't deny, doesn't deny that there are other gods. Let me be clear on that. In fact, the Bible actually doesn't deny that there are other gods. What the Bible claims and what the Bible says is that in comparison to Yahweh, the the chief God, the creator of all things, these other so-called gods, these other deities or lesser divine beings, listen, are powerless. They have no power. They're nothing compared to Yahweh. He can wipe them out with one breath. But the reality is they do exist. In fact, Paul says in, in chapter 10 that when, when the Corinthians sacrifice, or, or when people, rather, sacrifice to these idols, what they're really doing is they're sacrificing to demons. You see, in the unseen realm, it's, just, it's pretty black and white. You're either worshiping God or you're worshiping a demon. Other gods do exist. Let me just say that. They're lesser divine beings. Just read the Bible. It talks about this, Okay. So when, they, when the scripture tells us there's no God but one, it's not denying their existence. It's saying that Yahweh is way more powerful, has all authority over these gods, can wipe them out with a single breath. They are powerless in comparison to him. Yahweh has unique qualities that these other gods do not possess. So listen, there are other gods responsible for false religions and New Age philosophies and Eastern mysticism and, and things like that, right? There are other gods that would we'll just call them what they are, demons, 
that are responsible for the darkness that we encounter in our world today. This is what we call the unseen realm. You can read about it. Michael, Dr. Michael Heiser has written prolifically. He went to be with the Lord recently, unfortunately. But this is what the unseen realm, this is the idea of spirituality. Paul acknowledges this, okay? So here's the deal. Certain Corinthians understand that other gods have no power compared to Yahweh. Therefore, listen, therefore, listen, the meat that's used in these sacrifices is fine to eat. It's okay to eat because for those people, it's not a big deal. Like they understand like that God is not a real God. I mean, he's, he is a God, but he, Yahweh can smoke him, okay? So Paul's like, God, that's awesome. You guys get that. But then Paul's saying, but not everybody sees it that way. Some other believers actually feel differently about this same issue. How do we know? Well, let's look at the next verse. Verse number seven. But, here it is, not everyone possesses this knowledge, Paul says. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as being sacrificed to a God. And since their conscience is what, church? It's weak. It is defiled. They can't do it. They can't do that. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. So Paul says this, that some people, their conscience, it's bothered such a great deal. They can't eat that meat. They can't go to Jack's like you can and they can't buy it on sale. Okay? They can't do that because their conscience is weak and they're like, ah, I got to pass on that. For me, it's sin. Paul says that that's okay as well. That's okay. The big idea Paul is saying is this. It's like, listen, you're not better if you pass on the meat and you're not worse if you eat the meat. Because like the meat is not the idea here, right? This is where... This is why we see him talking about love. That's why he begins the chapter, the section, with talking about love. That everything that we do, how we practice our faith, is always done through the filter of love. So let's finish up the chapter because it's short. We can do that. Verse number 9. Here's what Paul says. He says, be careful. Okay, Here's, here's the caveat, so to speak. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights, okay, does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Don't cause them to stumble. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge, you got all this knowledge, you're good to go. It's, just, it's an idol, I don't, it's not a big deal. You got all this knowledge, plus you got all this knowledge, eating in, in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, Paul says, well, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. Okay, again, what's the underlying theme here? It's love, right? We know that. Let me say this. Just because you may be able to and free to do something in Jesus Christ, or free to eat that meat. For this example, be careful that it's not causing your brother or sister to sin. So you're like, well, I can eat the juicy cheeseburger, but maybe they can't. Okay, well, then maybe around them, you're, gonna, you're not going to practice that. You're not going to operate in your Christian liberty is what we would call that. Your freedoms for the sake of what? For the sake of loving your brother. That's what Paul is trying to say here. Don't cause them to stumble. They have a weak conscience. For them, they, can, they can't eat it. And we should always operate out of love 
for one another, though we have freedom, listen, to partake of a certain thing, okay? Now, I already know what you're thinking. You're like, okay, that's awesome, Marco. When it comes to food, sacrifice to idols. Be careful with it. Don't eat it. Don't make someone stumble. Do everything out of love. Great. Problem. I don't plan on eating a steak sacrificed to an idol anytime soon, right? <laughs> Nor do any of my friends or family members. So why is this in the Bible and why should I even care? Why is this relevant? That's a great question. That's a great question. Let's talk about that. You see, the principles that we just went through in, in, in 1 Corinthians 8, what they do is they provide us with a framework when we're discussing Christian liberty or the freedoms that we have in Jesus Christ. It gives us a framework by which we are to operate. The, the idea with Christian liberty is this. What do we have the freedom to do and not do? That's what Christian liberty is all about. Some, some theologians may term it in this way or freedom, however you want to phrase that. Now, of course, we know that we're not supposed to sin. Like, that's very clear in Scripture. However, the thing is, in Scripture, there are some areas that are a little bit, we would call them gray areas. A gray area of the faith. Let me explain. Let me explain. I'm going to give you a list, okay? The list is going to be behind me. And the list is going to be ten things. Ten actions, okay, church? Ten actions. Now, some of you are going are gonna to deem these things as sinful. Others of you are going to say, no, that's not sinful at all. Now, don't say it out loud. I don't want any fist fights to break out and spouses to fight on their way home, you know, in the car. And, you know, just keep it to yourself. Oh, just keep a tally mark in your head, in your head, in your head. Okay, I think that, that for me, that's sinful. Oh, that, pff, that's not a big deal. Oh, yeah, that, oh, yeah. Oh, right, just keep a tally in your head as we go through them, okay? Here's a list of 10 things. Number one, watching R-rated movies. Ooh, it gets better. Number two, listening to non-Christian music. Number three, here's a big one, drinking alcohol. It's a big one. Still today, it's a really, really big one. Number four, getting a tattoo. Yikes. Oh, boy. Okay. Number five, attending a Halloween party. Had some Christians fight over that one. A few uppercuts thrown because of that one. Not even joking. Number six, using social media. Number seven, driving five miles over the speed limit. Can I just tell you, that is a sin, but if you're on your way to church and you're late, it is not a sin, Okay. <laughs> Because I know some of you fly down North Euclid. Don't lie to me. You're in church. If you lie, fire will come from heaven, okay? You fly. You're going. It's 40. 40 feels like really slow. I'm just saying to me, most times I'm going 50, sometimes 55. Just confession is good for the soul. Some of you like to tailgate and just hang out in the person's back seat in front of you, right? You're just like, just jump right in the car, right? Number eight, smoking pot. Marijuana, Mary Jane, ganja, whatever you want to call it. Just want to communicate what that really is to everyone in the room. Okay. Evil lettuce, I think is what someone told me. <laughs> I was like, what? 
And you're like, oh, that's what he's talking about. And okay, it's for you. It's for you. Number nine, begging on sporting events. Watch out, Jamie Foxx, okay? Like, okay. We've seen those commercials. Okay. I don't know, I forgot what the app is called, but whatever, okay? Number 10, playing video games that contain violence. Oh, gosh, someone said, <laughs> let's put away the Grand Theft Auto here, okay? Oh, I know what that is, trust me. Okay, 10 things here, 10 different actions. The fact and the reality is, listen, some of you were like, nope, uh-uh. And others of you are like, yeah, I could, that's fine. No, that's fine. We could add dancing, dancing. Some of you are like, oh, no, pastor, we do not dance. That is an abomination. Some of you are like doing the robot in your head already. You're like, it's like, oh, yeah, we love to dance. It's like, you see, the idea is, is that many Christians would label these as issues that are gray areas. Let me give you a definition. What is a gray area? Gray areas are actions that Scripture doesn't, clearly identify as sinful or non-sinful for all people in all places at all times, okay? To say it another way, to say it biblically speaking, any matter that is not clearly commanded, prohibited, or permitted in Scripture. That's a gray area. The reality is that a lot of Christians fight about these things. They divide unnecessarily. I see that all the time as a pastor. It's like, just splits happening all over the place. It's just like these open-handed issues that we don't really need to fight about. Listen, my purpose today is not to argue on the morality of these specific potential gray areas in your life, okay? Here's what I want to do. Rather, I want to offer you questions to help you make moral decisions that help you to honor God in your everyday life, okay? Okay, I want to help you make good moral decisions, so what we're going to do is I'm going to give you five questions that I want you to ask yourself. I think these might be good for you to write down, okay? Some of these things that we went through, you, you like, that's you. Like, you've, you're, you've done that. You, you participated in those things. So five questions. We're going to use the biblical text, okay? And, the, and then the wider narrative of Scripture to help us figure out these five things when, when we're navigating a potential gray area of the faith, Okay? Number one, is the Holy Spirit convicting me that this is wrong? Okay. For some of you, there could be a thing in the Holy Spirit, there's no conviction. Others of you, there is conviction. I'm not saying you have liberty to sin against God. That's not what I'm saying, not at all. It's clear in Scripture, okay? What I'm saying is that, does the Holy Spirit prick your heart when it comes to this thing? Drinking alcohol, whatever it is, I don't know. Watch an R-rated movie. Listen to secular music. Okay? Is the Holy Spirit convicting you? Romans 14, 23. But whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat. Paul. Same writer. Paul. Because their eating is not from faith. Everything, Paul says, that, is, that does not come from faith is what, church? Is sin. Yeah. Listen, if, you're, if, you're, if your conscience is bothered, then, then you have to listen to that. Okay? Everything that does not come from faith is sin. Don't, don't do it. You're like, what about making out with my girlfriend? Well, it may not be explicitly written in Scripture, but it's going to lead to sin quite quickly. There could be lust in your heart as well. It's the Holy Spirit revealing these things to you. Okay? James 4.17, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Okay? So number one, is the Holy Spirit convicting me this is wrong? 
Number two, is this action causing a brother or sister to stumble? In other words, are you causing someone else to sin? Okay, are you causing someone else to sin? Because if you are, then it's very unwise that you, that you, you do that thing. Now, you might think, well, I can have the beer and like a good beer with a burger or burrito night, you know, taco night, taco Tuesday, Marco. It's like I like to have a glass of wine, and that's awesome. Okay, great. Bible doesn't say you can't have beer, okay? Paul writes to Timothy and says, have a little wine for your stomach. So don't tell me you can't. Bible speaks against drunkenness, though, explicitly, okay? But let me just ask you this. What if your brother or your sister is a recovering alcoholic? Are you going to just say, hey, whatever, I don't care what you think about me. I'll do what I want. I'm free in Christ. Or are you going to say, oh, hey, you know what? No, 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 no. The brotherhood, the sisterhood is more important than a glass of wine or a beer. Like, I don't need that. If you know someone who's been through it, you're going to be sensitive and love them, okay? For you, maybe overconsumption of alcohol has never been an issue. But for them, like, it... it tore their family apart. So you want to be sensitive to that. You're not choosing your selfish freedoms. What are you doing? You're choosing to love your brother as Christ would love him. Choosing to love your sister. That's what Paul's trying to to lead us to here today. Number three, is this action harmful rather than beneficial to my faith? Is it harmful rather than beneficial to my faith? Well, I don't see anything in Scripture. Yeah, but look, (laughs) here's the question. 1 Corinthians 6, 12. I have the right to do anything, you say, is what Paul says, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. So is it harmful to your body, right? You may have the freedom in Christ to do that thing, but is it even good for you, right? <laughs> have you ever heard that saying, um, smoking doesn't send you to hell, but it, it'll make you smell like you've been there already, right? <laughs> I'm not here to bash on smokers. I'm just saying, listen, you can, technically. But you got to ask yourself, is this good for your body, your lungs, the future of your family, your children? We need to ask ourselves these questions when we're thinking about these certain issues. Number four, is this action mastering or controlling me? That's what Paul just told us about. You might say, okay, Pastor Marco, I take uh, marijuana for medicinal purposes, Fair enough. We got enough. We got more wheat shops than we in this town than we do McDonald's. Okay, like it's pretty wild. So the chances of some of you partaking in that, I think, is pretty high. I'll be honest with you. So we should talk about it, right? Let me ask you this question though: Is it altering your state? What about this one? Has it mastered you? Has it mastered you? Paul tells us that the only master we should have is who? Jesus Christ. Yeah. In fact, Paul writes in Romans 6, I think it is, Romans 7 perhaps, that we are to have, that we are no longer a slave to our sin, but we become slaves to what? Righteousness. So listen, I'm not here to judge you or cast shade at you or throw shade at you. I'm just simply here to say, listen, if you were to take a look in your heart and let the Holy Spirit search you, are you dependent upon that thing now? Are you the slave and it's your master? Because Jesus should be our own, only master, okay? Number five, here's a big one. Am I judging others who don't agree with me in this gray area? This is what I see so many Christians do. Fight about it and then leave a church. 
They split. They find five of the people who think exactly like they do on everything. It's going to be a real small church. It's probably going to be you in your living room. It's what some Christians do. Well, there's just not a church for me. No, you're just self-righteous. Romans 14, 13. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. He's talking about, about the brothers in Christ, sisters in Christ, on one another. He's not talking about judging outsiders. Remember, Paul says, don't do that. But listen, let's, let's just stop passing judgment on one another. Now, the context is key here. Romans 14 is the same conversation, essentially, about this me, about drinking, um, doing things out of love. So read the entire chapters if you're wondering the context here, Okay. Instead, he says, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. You see, again, too often I see Christians that they're, they're fighting about the non-essentials, about the, the open-handed issues of the Christian faith. Now, I think it's important to have conversations, but I don't think it's so important. I don't think it's good for us to judge, call another a heretic, and then we divide. Now, there are close-handed issues of the faith, like, is Jesus the Son of God? Right? It's close-handed. We're not going to debate about that. What about this one? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We're not debating about that. There's no issue. There's no, there's, no, there's no debate. There's no question there. Yes, he's the way, the truth, and the life. We're not debating that. But there are some things in the faith, listen, that for some others, it, they would participate. Others would deem it as sinful. So I think that we have to be careful not to just throw judgment on other believers so quickly. Rather, maybe have conversations. Rather, maybe listen. You might not be able to go to that Halloween party, but maybe they can. And it's not, it's, it does nothing for them. It's, it's not evil for them. They're not, they're not dressing like a demon or a stripper or whatever. You know what I'm saying? They're not, they're not misrepresenting Christ. So for you, you're like, I, I can't. I'm not going to do that. That's not me. I'm not, not uh-uh. But for them, they're fine, and they, they, they do it in a way that honors God. It's clean. It's, it's, it's fine. And rather, love one another, not pass judgment, instead of, again, making judgment calls on believers. Now, as we close this morning, here's what I want to do. Here's what I think Paul would tell us, that we need to avoid two pitfalls when it comes to our faith. Two pitfalls, or two ditches. Write this down if you, if you have a notebook or a pen, okay? This is important. Two pitfalls that we so easily fall into, and every one of us, myself included. Okay, on the right here, I'll just, I'll just say this. The first pitfall is what we call license, a license to sin. So we take our freedoms, and we're like, I don't care what you say, I'm free. He's such a prude, and I, don't, I do what I want, and I'm free in Jesus, and he forgives, and there's grace everywhere, right? And you're using your freedom to sin. And people are like, bro, come, like, Really? Like, you don't see that you're in sin, and you're using it as a license. The other pitfall, listen, is this one, legalism. A license and legalism. Legalism happens, listen, when I take my preferences and my traditions, and I make them into a law. Legalism happens when we separate the law from the lawgiver. And what we do, what so many Christians do, is they're so concerned about following a rule or a law that they've lost track of the lawgiver. They don't even know him. They're just following a bunch of rules. There's no relationship with Christ. They just follow rules. And listen, 
Jesus didn't say, come follow rules. He said, come follow me. Come and follow me. And I, for some of you this morning, listen, I don't want you to think that Christianity is all about just rules and regulations. No, no, no. Listen, Christianity is about knowing a Savior. A Savior. Having a relationship with God through Jesus who, when we profess faith, the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us, begins to change our hearts, our desires. For some of you, maybe you're like, I just, Christianity, it's just so, it's just so restrictive and prohibitive, and I, I can't sleep with my boyfriend, I can't live together with him, and we can't have sex before marriage, and I, I, just, I, I just, I don't know how you guys do it. I just, I just, I want to do what I want to do. The thing is, is that the thing you want to do has caused you to be a slave to that thing. Christianity, though, listen, is not about rules. It's about, listen, a Savior, about knowing him. And that when you surrender to God, you surrender to God in Christ, listen, it comes, it changes your heart, your desires. And of course you must follow the heart of God, the commands of God, of course. All right? So there's license, legalism. Can I just tell you there's a better way? It's another L word. It's love. It's love. Here's what it says. Galatians 5.13. Paul says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. Amen. But here's the caveat. It's really important. Do not use your freedom to what? To indulge the flesh. Okay? To indulge the flesh. And yes, of course, we're not free to sin against God. Of course not. So don't hear, don't, please don't say, well, are you saying we can just do whatever we want? No, that's not what I'm saying. It's not what I'm saying. Look at the text. Do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping the one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Let me just say this. Let me just say this. Paul says that Christians still have a moral obligation. Listen, to follow the moral standards of God as outlined in the Bible. Is that clear? Christians and believers have a moral obligation to follow the commands of God outlined in Scripture, okay? Obedience, though, we have to remember, obedience is not a means of justification, but it's a, a crucial component to the Christian life, okay? It's a crucial component to the Christian life. When we're faced with a moral dilemma that isn't directly addressed in Scripture, we need to consider what Jesus would do, would have us do in light of his word, Okay? I know this sounds like a religious sentiment, but I promise you it's not. It's taken directly from Scripture. Paul says in Philippians 2.5, Let this mind be in you that is also in Jesus Christ. Having the mind of Christ is a critical part of living a godly life. A godly life. Not a licentious life. Not a life where you just do whatever you want. Not a life that says, I just do what my feelings tell me to do, Pastor Marco. Not a life that just says, hey, I'm free to sin against God because grace will cover it. That's not what I'm talking about at all. I'm talking about freedom to live a godly life. So what's one of the big ideas for this morning? I'll say it like this. Live by the heart of the command, not just the letter of the law. Here's another way we can say it. Don't just follow rules, follow Jesus. Don't just follow rules, follow Jesus. Because the idea is, is that we're all prone. We're prone to go either towards license 
or legalism. And you know what I've, you know what I've discovered? I've discovered this, is that so often I can tell where a person will lean towards dependent upon their background and their upbringing. They came out of this staunch, you know, uh, legalistic church. So when they come into a, a church like this, they're, they're like, oh, we, we can't lift our hands to worship because that's expressing ourselves. We, we can't show emotion because we were never allowed to show emotion at my church. And everything we do, you know, they have all these preconceived notions of the, of the Christian faith. So, so people just like stare at the band like. It's like, no, 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 you, you can worship, you can sing from the top of your lungs. I want you to, I want you to sing out to him. I want you to cry out to Jesus, right? But oh, we, we can't dance because dancing sends us to hell, Pastor Marco. It's like, so they see other people doing this and worship and worshiping. They're like, heathens, heathens. I cannot believe they're dancing before the Lord. So often... Where we lean is, is dependent upon our upbringing. Listen, and, and for some of you here, uh, here's what I want to say here's, as we close this morning. For some of you here, you're, you're, you're prone to go to license to sin. You're like, well, you know what? I came out. You're, you're actually, you're, 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 the pendulum is swinging in the opposite direction. In other words, you grew up in this legalistic home, a legalistic church, and now you're on the other side. And you're just like, free at last, I'm free. You know, Tom Petty, you're, you're singing that song, I do whatever I want. And, just kind of sin when I feel like it. Grace abounds, Marco. I'm good to go. Just, it's all covered in the blood. I mean, you said it in a message one day. You're just like free. You're dancing. You're doing this number, right? And you're like, whoa, whoa, slow down. You're sinning against God, and you're causing brothers and sisters to stumble. They're looking at your life and saying, what? What's he doing? What's she doing? I didn't think that was okay. I didn't either. I guess it's okay. Okay, well, let's do that thing. All right, cool. Some of you are prone to legalism, right? You're like, you're just coming in, you're throwing judgment on everybody. I can't believe it. I dance and send you to hell. And if you do that, uh, King James only, Pastor Marco. If you don't, it's like, a, and, then, and then you, the reason why you can't find a church is because you can't find anyone to agree with you on all hundred things that you want to agree on. So we're prone to go to one towards the other, myself included. License or legalism. Paul says, listen, we're free. We're not free to do what we want. We're free to what? Live a godly life. Honor God with our actions. Honor God with our decisions. Honor God with the words that come out of our mouths. We're free to serve Jesus. Okay? So maybe this morning some of you need to repent because you used, you used grace like a license, baby. And you're just like, I do what I want, when I want. It's fine. You're just riding that grace train. Okay? I don't need to repent. I don't need to confess. A hyper grace theology is what they call that. That's happening in, our, in the church today at large in some sections. Some of you, you need to repent because you've been throwing shade at other Christians. You're judging. You're walking around like you know everything and you're snooty and you're casting judgment and you're dividing from other believers. And, and, and listen, I think it's okay to have conversations, but I don't think it's okay to, to, to throw judgment on other people and to talk behind their backs. And it's like, okay, you're, you're dividing the body of Christ. And then we divide so many times. Listen, we're just ineffective. It's one of the reasons why we have so many tiny churches in Bay City. It's because no one can get along. The church can't even get along. And now I just want to call you to love this morning. No, not license, but love. To honor God with your lives decisions, right? 
To avoid legalism, it's a pit we so easily fall into. Okay? Avoid license. Choose to love Jesus. When you love Christ, honor him with your relationships. Honor him with your sexuality. Honor him with whatever activity you choose to do. These five questions I hope give you a framework. This morning the prayer team is going to come up. This morning if you're here and you're far from Jesus, I want to just invite you in to know God in a personal relationship with Him. As I said earlier, it's not just about rules and regulations. It's about knowing a Savior and the Savior that would change your life. It's about, listen, walking away from your life of sin, walking away from rebellion. There might be one person in here, you've tried everything under the sun. You've tried drugs, sex, alcohol, you name it, and you're still empty and dead on the inside. And listen, that's not by accident. It's because the only thing that will fill your heart is a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I want to invite you into that today. You can know him. Know what it's like to be forgiven of your sins, to be reconciled to our Heavenly Father, and to be given a new life right here and right now. Not just in heaven and eternity. I'm talking about right now. New life in Jesus. All things have passed. The old has passed. Paul says the new has come. I want to invite you into that this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for your word. God, I love uh, the psalmist. He says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. God, let that be true for your people this morning, God. Uh, so easily we fall into license to sin, do whatever we want. Others of us, we're so easily prone to legalism. We judge everybody else and we wonder why we can't find a church. Father, would you help us to choose the better way, and that's the way of love. We love Jesus with all of our hearts, our minds, and soul. And the second, equally important, love our neighbor as ourselves, God. Help us to choose the way of love. And when we choose to love you, God, we choose to honor you in our decisions, to abide in your word, to obey your commandments, God. It's not something that we have to do. We get to, God. We get to honor you. We get to please you with our lives. And there's nothing better, God. There's nothing better than living for you. There's no drug. There's no alcohol. There's no party experience or sexual escapade that could ever compare to loving and knowing Jesus. So, God, we walk away from the darkness today. We humble ourselves. Forgive us, Jesus, of what we've done. We confess that we're sinners, that we've fallen short. Without you, we're on our way to hell. But with you, God, there's life eternal in the here and now and in the future. God, come and live inside of us. Make us new. Give us a new heart, Lord. We repent. We turn away and we come to you, Lord. We thank you, Jesus, that you took our place on the cross. We deserve to be there. We were supposed to be the ones there, condemned, guilty. And yet you took our place. You shed your blood for us, God. We did not earn it, and we could never deserve it. And yet you freely gave us this beautiful gift. God, help us never to use grace as a license to sin, Lord. We love you. We honor you. This morning, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Church, can we clap our hands for the King of kings, Lord of lords, this morning?